you would open your Bibles with me. Uh, we are in Psalm 6 today, continuing along in our series, Living Beyond the Muck. A seminary student was asked to write a reflection on the Psalms, and he spoke candidly. He said, I don't get these psalmists. They seem like a bunch of whiners. And I got to tell you, in some ways, he's not wrong. Like, the Psalms are not all sunshine and rainbows. You get into the Psalms, and, and you really see some desperation on the heart of the psalmists. So, yeah, they're kind of whiners. But then that got me to thinking, what if someone, like, could overhear all of my prayers and read my prayer journal? <laughs> they'd probably conclude that I'm a whiner too. Uh, that's because I believe that difficulty drives us into prayer. If you go back and read your prayer journal or think of the prayers that you've prayed in recent time, it's likely that some of your most heartfelt prayer, the frequency of prayer, all of that took place during a difficult time. Now, in Psalm 6, while this isn't one of David's most lengthy psalms, we have an entry where David is dealing with significant difficulty in his life. And we've been noticing that as we've been moving along in this series. We've talked about anxiety. We've talked about criticism. We've talked about enemies. And this morning is just a new feature of the difficulty of life. So let's take a look at it, Psalm 6, and see if you can discern what the difficulty is. Psalm 6, to the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Shimonith, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in, the depth, in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. So, if we're to discern what the difficulty is this morning, I would suggest, as I read this psalm, that David is in utter crisis mode right now, okay? There's times in life where all of a sudden life becomes urgent and important, meaning that you had a list of priorities, but something occurred in your life that elevated that thing to the number one thing, and sometimes it elevates it to the all-consuming thing. As you look at David's crisis, it could be that he is dealing with a physical ailment of some sort. It talks about his bones being in agony. It talks about him languishing. But as you know, the Psalms are poetry. 
And that could just as easily be figurative terms for some other form of crisis. And I think that Scripture leaves sometimes these things vague because crisis comes in various forms. You know, for example, if you were here a couple, maybe seven, eight years ago, you know that my mom went through cancer back then. Thank God she went through that well. She's in remission and has been for many years now. But for me, like the crisis, the urgent and important of that was the feeling that I couldn't do anything about it, couldn't change anything. I'm a man of action. I like to do things. There's nothing you could do. I have a friend right now who his crisis happens to be that his daughter has cut off all communication from him. She texted him and said, I don't want you contacting me. I don't want to hear from you. That's the kind of thing that keeps you up at night and makes your bones feel like they're in agony. It hurts. And when life turns urgent and important, a couple of things happen. Your heart is crushed. Your mind gets confused. Uh, if we're looking at this muck analogy, you, you feel like you're knee-deep in the muck, and perhaps the most painful piece of it is the question that comes to your heart in the midst of it. Why is God allowing this? We call this disorientation. Disorientation. Uh, at one point, you thought you kind of understood how the world worked. You knew what God was like. You knew what you were about. You had a vision for the future of your life. You knew everything was heading in that direction. And then the crisis hits. And all of a sudden, you no longer know what you don't know. You don't have a clue anymore. How do you work through that confusion? How do you work through the questions that manifest as a result of that confusion? Well, Psalm 6 is a prayer for those who are knee-deep in the muck. David is processing his confusion. And I'm going to present this confusion to you in the form of questions. I believe these are questions that all of us have asked if we have hit crisis before. Now, the first question is, are you angry with me? That's verses one and two. The second question is, how long will you allow this? The third is, how will this accomplish your purpose for me? And the fourth is, do you see how overwhelmed I am? Now notice what David does in this psalm. He brings his confusion to God, which means we should bring our confusion to God as well. That first question, are you angry with me? Verses one and two, oh Lord, don't rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your rage. Have compassion on me, Lord, for I am weak. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. Now, let's just unpack this language a little bit. You'll notice first that David talks about the Lord rebuking him. That word rebuke in Hebrew is a judicial term. In other words, he feels like he's under God's judgment right now. You'll also notice that he talks about my bones are troubled or they're in 
agony. This could be an idiomatic way of saying, I'm terrified out of my senses right now. So if you put the pieces together, whatever's going on in David's life, he's struck with the fear that this crisis that he's undergoing right now is a result of God's judgment, that God's mad at him, that God's brought this about. Now let me ask you the question, have you ever been struck by that fear before? I'll bet you you have, because it's not an uncommon thing to experience. And I want to suggest this morning that crisis does this, it introduces confusion. It has a way of clouding our perception of God. Uh, Before, we viewed God as a heavenly Father who is loving. And we know this of God. We know that God only disciplines in a loving way. And yet, when the crisis hits and the confusion comes, we start believing that he's turned harsh on us. That he's angry. That he's going to lash out. Like, David probably is going back in his mind to some sinful episode. And we know that in his life, there were some big highlights there. And his emotions get the better of him. And he is visceral in this prayer. God, are you done with me? Have I finally like crossed the line to where you're not going to forgive me this time? It made me think back to um, a time in my childhood Uh, my brother Rhett and I had disobeyed our father now. Not the only time we did it, but it was a pretty big one this time. My parents had just bought a brand new couch. And in our house, money was very tight. So whenever we got new things, they were kind of a big deal around the house. And my mom loved this couch. She wanted this couch so bad. And, And my brother and I, We're like Tasmanian devils. We're just bouncing around through the house like tumbleweeds, rolling around, wrestling, fighting, doing all of that kind of stuff, bouncing up and down on the new couch. And my dad comes into the room and he says, you guys need to stop roughhousing on the the couch. You're going to break it. Well, he leaves the room. And jumping on new couches for kids is as irresistible as eating cookies before dinner. So we start jumping on the couch again, and only moments after he leaves the room is there this giant crack. One of the legs of the couches break. Let me just ask you a question. Were your parents prophets too when you were growing up? (laughs) I, I gotta tell you, every time my mom or dad would walk in the room and say, you need to stop doing this thing. This thing's going to break. I mean, I could have been doing that for hours. They would walk in and say that. And then seconds later, the thing would break. Well, my dad hears the crack. He comes into the room and he's like, you guys better get to your room before I get to you. I don't actually remember what he said. I just remember we were running as fast as we could. We ran up the stairs. We hid under the bed in our rooms. And we start, like, talking to one another, and we're sharing our last words with one another. (laughs) I remember looking at Rhett and tears rolling down my eyes and saying, Rhett, at least we know we're going to heaven. (laughs) Now, the funny thing is, 
if you know my dad, you know that he's not about to come upstairs and commit murder over a broken couch leg. My mom, on the other hand, is a different story. <laughs> she used to uh, say to us, boys, I brought you into this world, and I can take you out of it. <laughs> and I believed her. <laughs> but dad, you know, dad's not that kind of guy. <laughs> but why did that fear overwhelm us in the moment. The fear came because we were recognizing his power. We forgot in the moment that, that dad would never use that power to harm us because he, he loved us. It makes me think of a verse in 1 John. The apostle says that we know that we've grown in our understanding of God when our perception of God's love diminishes our fear of his wrath and his anger. He says this, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And what I find remarkable about David in Psalm 6 is even though he's been struck by this fear of God's anger and God's wrath, what does he do? He takes the fear to the source. He brings it to God. He says, God, I'm scared right now. I'm hiding under my bed. I'm afraid you're done with me. And it's in that space that God is working out this confusion that has fallen upon his heart. Now, let's take a look at another confusion. This is a question that's often repeated in the Psalms. How long? Uh, you've probably asked the question if you've been through crisis or suffering, something's become urgent and important. How long is this going to continue? When are you going to bring relief, Lord? How, how long are you going to just sit by idly and, and watch me go through this experience? I don't think I'm going to make it. You know, when we're in crisis, it, it makes me think about the feeling that you get when you're holding your breath underwater. Now, I was a swimmer, and when you first start swimming, you start training your breath underwater, and the first time that you go underwater and you start holding your breath, you go down underwater, your coach does a timer and starts timing you, and you go under and you're holding your breath and you think you're under there for a long time, and all of a sudden the pain and the panic starts hitting you, and you come bombing up to the surface and you gasp for breath, and you think you were just like seconds away from drowning. You're like, coach, how long was I underwater? How long? And he's like, oh, um, 10 seconds, good job. <laughs> but you start building capacity. After two years of swimming, I was actually able to swim four lengths of the pool. So one length is 25 yards, that's 100 yards, that's over a minute and like 20 seconds underwater. There's other individuals that do free diving. They go down hundreds of feet underwater. They've developed the capacity to hold their breath for well over five minutes. It's incredible. You see, 
the perennial problem that we face when it comes to the ways of God is we believe that in the moment of crisis and in the midst of the pain that we're about to drown. And God knows that you have more in you. In fact, part of what God's doing in the midst of the waiting is he's building your lung capacity. Uh, James says it like this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And what is steadfastness? Well, part of it might be that you're growing up. The things that you looked at before in life and you said, there's no way I could handle that. You know, you only had 10 seconds that you could stand being underwater. And God says, you've got more and I know you can handle this. And then in retrospect, you look back and you think that wasn't as difficult as I thought it would be. But I also believe it's developing a perception of the God of the universe where you realize that your worst case scenario is still infinitely smaller than this big God that we worship. You become steadfastness, steadfast, and what's the result? Well, it says, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, meaning you're growing up. You're actually taking that cross that Jesus said you could carry, and you're carrying it. He's making you into the person that he intended you to be. That's the result. David's third question, how will this accomplish your purpose for me? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Doesn't it kind of sound like David is bargaining with God right now? I mean, that's what I thought as soon as I started reading this. God, if, if you do this, if you solve my problem right now, well then, I'll give you praise. I'll worship you. And who hasn't gone there? You get into trouble and you, you start kind of bartering with God a little bit. I'll give you this, you give me that. It'll all work out nicely for us. It kind of makes me think of my son sometimes he'll come up to me and say, Daddy, you know, if you let me watch a movie tonight, I'll give you a piece of chocolate. <laughs> and I'm like, son, I got this plastic thing in my wallet that I can go to a store and get a lot of chocolate. Like, I don't need chocolate right now. I'm not in this dynamic here for the chocolate. And I know you, you don't have control over your impulses. Like, if I let you, you would be in front of that TV all day, every day. So I'm going to say no, and I don't need any chocolate. I don't need to bargain with you. But here's the thing about David. I don't think he's actually bargaining. As you look at what he's saying here, David is getting down to his purpose in life. He understands his purpose. Now, here's the deal. You as a New, Christian, uh, New Testament Christian, you stand in this privileged position. Scripture tells us this. You know about salvation in Jesus Christ. You know that the grace of God has visited us. You know about heaven and eternity and that in Christ you will be glorified and you will dwell with God and be like him for you shall see him face to face. But David didn't know all of that. 
You see, even though while he's writing the Psalms, he's writing scriptures, it doesn't mean that David fully understood the mind of God along the way. They say that scripture is progressive revelation, that more and more of the mind of God is revealed along the way. So David, as he's thinking about the afterlife, is terrified because he's thinking about this place called Sheol. And it's a dark place, a place of shadows, a gray place, a place of silence. God, how am I going to fulfill my purpose in a place like that? You know, he's cloudy about eternity in heaven, but he's clear on what his purpose is. What is his purpose? Well, we see it in verse 5. He says, how can I praise you. In other words, David knows why he exists. I exist to glorify God with my life. Have you ever been in a place in your life where you wrestled with your purpose, where you fear you've lost your purpose? Now, sometimes that happens because my purpose is tethered to the wrong things. It's tethered to my job or my kids or my possessions or something way, way inferior to God. But other times, it's a wrestling match because something changes for us physically. I think of the writer John Milton who wrote Paradise Lost. And if you know anything about his story, John Milton started developing blindness about midway through his life. Imagine the existential crisis of that. You're this poet. You write grand words for the glory of God. And all of a sudden, your eyes are diminishing, and you're not sure if you are good for anything for God's purposes. Now, I want to suggest today that we all must travel the journey that John Milton travels, because guess what? We get older. Our energy wanes. The things that we used to be able to do, we can't do them anymore. Our executive function starts diminishing. Now, in Milton's case, this is not transpiring over decades. This is happening in rapid fashion. And he's like, what do I do with this? What do I do about it? And he writes this poem on his blindness. And this is the conclusion that he arrives at. It says, that murmur soon replies, God doth not need either man's work or his own gifts. So who best bear his mild yoke? They serve him best. His state is kingly. Thousands at his bidding speed, and post or land and ocean without rest, they also serve who only stand and wait. In other words, Milton is saying, God doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need me to perform a special function in order to bring him glory. He has all of these posts, uh, these servants that, that land in oceans. So think of it like this. Bees pollinating flowers, birds carrying seeds over water, and even the trees who are stationary, who do effectively nothing, bring him glory because of their majesty. Now, sometimes we get into that space and we, may, we think to ourselves, well, then what good am I if God doesn't need anything from me? Well, it has nothing to do with that. He's the creator of the universe. What could he possibly need from us? Well, God is glorified when I am most satisfied in him. 
He's glorified when I trust him. Now, if that manifests itself while I am still strong in me, leveraging my strength for him, to God be the glory. But I could go out tomorrow and get hit by a car and be paralyzed from the neck down. Am I suddenly no longer able to glorify God? Of course not. God receives glory as we serve him and worship him and we remain faithful to him. The last point of confusion, do you see my overwhelm? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away with grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. He's overwhelmed. And maybe you can relate to this. Maybe you've been through that experience where during the daytime it was better because you could occupy your day, you could fill up your schedule, you could distract yourself from your thoughts. But you know, here's what God has done to us. He has put us on these 24-hour calendars where every single day we have to slow down. We lay down in our bed and it's at that stopping place where reality sometimes sets in. And I have to face it. Can I give you a piece of advice as your pastor? You cannot run from your pain. You can't. You can't drink your pain away. You can't overcome it through shopping therapy. You can't shove it into a corner that you hope is this mystical corner where it just kind of poof, disappears. You can't medicalize your pain away with pills. The reason for this is, is that pain is both physical and spiritual because you are both a body and a soul. So yes, sometimes physiologically I may have a chemical imbalance and medicine helps with that. But pain is also spiritual and medicine can't solve the spiritual dimension of pain. Only God can do that. And I suggest that the spiritual is always greater than the physical, despite the common wisdom of today. And how do I know this? Well, because I've seen people with incredible physical problems remain strong and joyful. Obviously, the spirit's greater in that regard. So let's look at David's conclusion as he goes through this confusion. If you look at verses 8 through 10, he says, depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Now, isn't it interesting that as David's processing this confusion with God, that he turns again to these enemies? Why? I mean, is David like always seeing like a monster lurking around the corner? He's always thinking like, everyone's out to get me. There's no one that's in my camp. Is that, is that him? I think as I've been processing this, that when you get into the space of crisis, there are helpful voices and there are unhelpful voices. 
So the unhelpful voices are the people who kind of confuse the truth around you. Uh, Enemy is also adversary. And when you think about Satan, he's the ultimate adversary. Why? Because he distorts the truth. He clouds your perception so that you don't pursue the truth. So you may have voices around you that say like pablum things like, oh, it's just going to get better. And you're like, really? It's going to get better? Because this is like not going to get better. Like I lost someone or I have been physically altered in some way or my child's not talking to me right now. How does that just get better? How do I know it's going to work out? Or they might whisper cynical things in your ear, tell you to be bitter about it and resentful about it. That's unhelpful. That's clouding the truth. You need helpful voices. Voices that tell you the truth, that encourage you with the word of God, that say, listen, God is bigger than your problem. And the most helpful person involved in this dynamic that David sees is God himself. He says God's a listening God. Why is that important? Well, the first reason I would suggest is that listening is a gift. Uh, When you're in the midst of crisis, you know the difference between the person that is listening and looking at their watch and looking to get out of that dynamic, and that's not helpful at all. And the person that is like locked in and empathizing with your pain and hearing you. And God is always the latter. He's always present. He's always available. He says, you can always bring your pain to me. And Peter, it says, cast your cares on him, for he cares for you. I also think there's another dimension to this, though. You see, there's nothing like a safe listening ear to help you arrive at clarity. As a pastor, I sometimes sit in the counseling chair. And people will come to me in utter crisis. Whatever's going on in their life, they just, they need to bear their soul. They need to pour out what's going on in their life. So they come and we sit down in my office and, and it's like the floodgates open. As soon as the conversation begins, they go down this windy road. It's like Cape Cod roads, right? Uh, you don't know how you got to where you're going. You just know you got there somehow. I, I call it unprocessed filtering. And you know, while they're talking, you know what I do? I just sit there and listen. I don't try to outline their ideas. I don't even always throw scripture in at certain times. I just kind of offer them an ear. It's, it's interesting. There's been a couple of times in the counseling dynamic where someone came into my office and they went down the windy roads for like an hour I mean, I didn't say anything other than maybe perhaps asking one or two clarifying questions. And they, you know, just go down the whiny roads and then they get done with the counseling session and they're like, oh, Pastor Rob, your, your counseling was just so effective today. And I'm like, what did I do? <laughs> you know, I've come to this realization People in pain need a safe space to process their confusion. Life is mucky. It's confusing. 
And oftentimes what is manifesting as they're processing their pain is that they actually already know the solution. They know it. Oftentimes as you're processing the pain, it's not so much that you don't know what to do, it's that you're afraid to do what you have to do. We know, we know God loves us. We know he's good. We know that he will never leave us or forsake us, but sometimes in the midst of crisis, it just gets cloudy. And God, get this, God created prayer for, one mean, or for this means, as among others, for us to work out our confusion with him, to be a listening ear. That's why we do it. And we come back to that space and we remember who he is and what he's about and, and that he loves us and that he cares and that, guess what? He's with us in the pain. Let's pray. I want to read a prayer to you that I wrote this week as I was processing Psalm 6. Father, I am confused and don't know what to think. I don't know if you are angry with me. I don't know if you see what I'm going through. I don't know if I'm even thinking clearly. But I choose to remember what I do know. I know you are my father. I know you have pursued me with your love. I know you proved this love by sending your son. I'm tuning out the negative voices. Some say you don't care. Others say I'm wasting my time by praying. They're dead wrong. You are a listening God. You've heard every word I've spoken. You're not afraid of my confusion. Even though I'm confused, Father, I'm not confused about you. You love me and I know that. Amen.